thanks for returning for week two. And uh, does any um, we had a good? I think week went really well. I, I'm glad that we had questions and a lot of uh, interactions. So I think that uh, I'm actually really pleased with the level of interaction we had. Uh, I'd like the classes to be that format of people just asking questions, interacting, maybe talking about experiences they've had, things they've heard or read, uh, and then we can talk about it in class. So please continue asking questions. Although, like last week, I may end up just putting you off until a few weeks. Um, Denny has ordered, if you still had your syllabus uh, that was handed out in week one, we had a couple books listed. Uh, so some of those books now are in the resource center. So if you would like to, um, you know, find out a little bit more, uh, I can't remember. Is the Kaltner book is the one that you were able to get multiple copies? I ordered two of the. Yeah. So the one that's the more expensive one that you'll see in there is uh, we're going to try to set up like a loan program. So if you want to, you know, sign it out like a library type set of situation, you can do that. So feel free to check those out if you'd like to read up a little bit more. Um, the good news is we only we're only about half half a session behind, so we're, we've not gotten that far off track. Yet. So. Uh, that being said, any questions before we get started today? Anything about the format? Uh, just to make you aware, uh, so week four and week five, uh, my wife and I will be in Phoenix for candidate school. So we won't be here, but what I've been planning from the beginning is to have a uh, movie. And I was trying to work it, figure out where to port that in. So I think it'll work out well to show that for weeks four and five. Uh, and that video is, um, some of you may have heard of it or seen it. Uh, Anthony Quinn, if you remember, a lot of you guys, any maybe certain generation remember Anthony Quinn. Thanks a lot, Jim. To it. <laughs> but he he uh, he made a, he was he started a movie uh, about I think it was the name of this The Prophet, and it's it's based on the life story of Muhammad. It's pretty historically accurate. It was pretty much I mean it was funded from the Middle East. Uh, really big budget, like on that grand scale of, um, you know, the it, it was about as big budget as you could get at that time. Uh, again, they got big name actors to, to get involved with it. It's a really good movie, and it really, um, so a lot of the stuff we're talking, the historical stuff that we'll be talking about, you'll actually see in that movie. I'll have some handouts for that movie as well, that before that's shown that you guys will have for the class to kind of clue you in on things to be looking for. Uh, it's shot from a Muslim perspective, and what that means, we'll kind of talk about that uh, as we go. So if we remember, uh, our whole um, emphasis on this course is trying to understand Islam from an Islamic and Muslim perspective. So that's really the direction we're trying to go. Uh, so if, um, just keep that in mind as we as we go about this uh, the class. Um, Last week we ended on this topic of Jahiliyyah. We didn't get too much further than this, so just a quick recap. Remember, uh, it's a historical period. We were referring to that period before of Islam, pre-Islam, so pre-Muhammad, uh, all of history leading up to uh, uh, the Muhammad and his revelation, the, the Quranic revelation, is referred to as the Jahiliyyah. But in the modern era, uh, starting in the late 18th century. And continuing on to today, this concept has been picked up, so it's more of an idea, ideology. So uh, this cons- uh, this claim of jahili, uh, of ignorance, being used uh, to um, as a foil for anything that uh, someone may say is un-Islamic, un-Islamic practices. Uh, so uh, if you remember, we, we got into some of that, how... Uh, Groups like Al Qaeda and these other groups uh, use this type of claim. So, if you read some of their material, if you were um, read anything that's been translated from Arabic to English, you'll see references to this this concept there. So, it's not just a historical period, but it also has some um, uh, some bearing on on what, what's going on today. So. If you still have your notes, not a big deal. If you don't, we'll look into the social, the economic setting of uh, of Arabia um, prior to Muhammad. So 
Um, the landscape and the environment of the Arabian Peninsula, uh, if you are familiar, it's still this way today to some degree. There's very few towns, uh, very few permanent settlements in the region. So the dominant mode of life uh, in Arabia um, during the pre... Uh, so the Arabia, we're talking about this area here. Um, so the main mode of lifestyle uh, was, was pastoral, uh, keeping livestock, grazing livestock. Um, in, that, in that part of the world, uh, what this meant is that you, you led a very nomadic lifestyle, uh, moving livestock, goats, <coughs> sheep, camels, uh, in search of food, in search of water, uh, you know, identifying areas, basically moving a set pattern wherever there were watering holes or oases, uh, looking for grazing land for your, your livestock. And so that's the, the main uh, way of life for the people that living in Arabia, particularly in Central Arabia, uh, prior to Islam. So another important activity, uh, and we'll, we'll, get under, we'll try to understand why that's important, why I even mention that now, uh, another important activity for these nomadic groups that are wandering the desert was raiding. Uh, so these raids were, were somewhat ritualized. Uh, what that means is that they were they were raiding other uh, groups, uh, settlements, looking for particular items. They weren't just going there and like killing everybody and taking stuff. So it was very, you know, the people being raided and the groups that were doing the raiding, they were kind of like unwritten rules that they would follow. So they wouldn't go in and just murder everybody. A lot of times it would be, uh, sometimes it would be just as simple as going into a settlement and taking uh, brides. So taking some women of marrying age, take the women and they would leave. And so they wouldn't steal anything, they wouldn't take anything. Wouldn't, there would be little violence. Uh, main, mainly, the, the uh, this was the main method of increasing wealth in the region. So you're talking about an area that doesn't have much uh, wealth that can be extracted from the environment. So increasing your wealth of your clan, of your tribe, was made through raiding. <coughs> but it also was an expression, uh, a way of expressing your manhood. So we'll find out why that's more important. In that period of time, uh, you know, this masculine, and this is something that Islam looks to deal with, of how uh, masculinity is portrayed or, or built and so being a successful raider, these kind of things, was important in, in expressing, uh, you know, your manhood. Um, so certain themes that begin to emerge that we, we can see that emerge from uh, nomadic, this nomadic lifestyle, this raiding lifestyle, that we actually still see today, uh, the preeminence of the clan. So we talk, we'll talk about this when we reach our second topic of Muhammad, the importance of clan. Uh, and of men in particular, the men of the clan in particular, uh, retaliation or blood feud, so that this, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but the blood feud, uh, retaliation, an eye for an eye, the idea of an eye for an eye, and this concept of personal honor becomes very important. So these are all important things that, that start, that have their roots in this uh, nomadic lifestyle that continue on to Islam. Uh, another important area for wealth are these trade routes. So that's what this map is showing. So these important trade routes, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this when we reach the topic of Muhammad, but you can see the, the really important one here are these, is this for Mecca, is this one here that's east-west, and then this north-south route that goes from Yemen all the way up, and would actually go would all the way to Constantinople. So it starts, you know, it's, it's where the stuff comes in the Red Sea, so control of Mecca becomes really important for these trade routes, this east-west and this north-south, which is probably one of the most important trade routes uh, in the whole region. So control of those trade routes, uh, or being at least stationed on a place where the trade routes would stop, is an important area of wealth. Uh, and so they begin in other places. I mean, they start all the way in China, going all the way to uh, places. I mean, these stop here. Uh, but there are some of these routes that go all the way into Italy and France uh, by the time of Muhammad. So they're not just important because of the trade, though. So they are bringing different trade, different goods, uh, but also the, there's, these are the contexts 
these are the areas that the ideas, religions, uh, politics, social ideas are being exchanged. So it's through these areas, especially in these these centers where they're actually stopping, that you have this exchange of ideas happening. Uh, and so if, if you, anybody's having trouble hearing because of the fan, let me know so I can up my, my volume. So I'm trying to, last week I, I was speaking a little too softly. Um, all right, so really the importance, the exchange of ideas is really important there on these tra- trade routes. Bringing ideas, new ideas in, uh, taking old ideas or the existing ideas and spreading them out. They, they're important before Islam, they're important after Islam because a lot of these trade routes is how Islam spreads. Uh, Islam, the two major places Islam would spread uh, immediately after the, uh, Muhammad dies down to Yemen and up into Syria and it's following trade routes that th- those ideas spread. Actually, well, actually, all the way to Asia. So if you remember that the largest, uh, if, I shouldn't say remember, but if you know the largest Islamic countries are in Asia, uh, Singapore, Malaysia, there's, there's uh, a lot of Muslims there, and how that Mus- how Islam spreads there, trade is an important uh, aspect of how it extends all the way there. Um, Eastern Europe, Northeast Africa, India, Central Asia, China, all these places are connected by these trade routes. Ideas are spreading. And so some of the oldest uh, first contacts of China with this part of the world are coming through these trade routes. We actually have written records uh, dating from the 8th century of Chinese trade uh, with East Africa for slaves. Uh, So as I said, these are important for the later Islamic kingdom as they would be the where uh, Islam spreads. Uh, and we actually, so as a side note, if you remember, if you studied your Christian history, you also know that trade routes are important for the spread of Christianity. So Paul is able to travel to different areas taking Roman roads that are initially based on military and, and commercial routes. So uh, these, these routes are important not just for Islam but for uh, other areas as well. Uh, and so finally, it was the trade routes that brought Jews into the region. So this interaction that Muhammad has, this early uh, Islamic community has, the followers of Muhammad, uh, the interaction they have with Judaism, uh, it's along these trade routes. So it's not ex- known exactly uh, when that Jews become uh, involved in the trade routes uh, in this area. Uh, but they were... They were firmly established by the time of Muhammad. So by the 7th century, late 6th century, you have Jews firmly established in these trade routes. So probably a few centuries before that, they started to get involved in this region. Um, so there's one group in particular uh, that are the Radonite, Radonite tribe, Radonite Jews. Uh, they control, control the particular slave route. They were important because they uh, we have a lot of their historical records and they control this a slave route that actually goes from France all the way to Central Asia. So we have their records, this Jewish group that controls the slave trade uh, all the way from Europe to Central Asia, who are, uh, by the 8th century, that's how that's how widespread they were. So, uh, And we'll, we'll explore why that's more important as we reach uh, the topic of Muhammad, this, this, the Jews there. So any uh, questions on that? Any uh, interaction on there. Um, next issue is poetry, which seems like a weird thing to uh, understand or look at. Why is pre-Islamic poetry important? So the importance of poetry to Arab Islamic culture cannot be underestimated. So that, that statement there. One writer noted that poetry was the major form of artistic expression that the ancient Arabs had. So the practical reason for this, why is poetry the main form of art? Why is it so important for Arabs? Uh, if you just think about a pastoral lifestyle, if you think about, um, it's almost like the cowboys in the Old West. So you're thinking 1800 cowboys, right? They're out, they're driving these cattle or, you know, uh, in the setting, there's no settlements. They're out, there's nothing for them to do. So they sing songs in the American West, you know, you have them singing songs around the campfire. Well, in pre-Islamic Arabia, what they would do is recite poetry. 
And so poets become take on a very prominent role in that culture, reciting long lines of poetry from memory. Uh, and that was uh, something uh, uh, that was highly sought after. Uh, people who, were, who did it well uh, could make a very good living, finding their, their way into um, kings in the region. Uh, clan leaders would, would employ them. Uh, and interestingly enough, so there's um, <coughs> this importance of poetry lasts long into even to the present day. And uh, so throughout Islamic history, poets are, are kind of allowed to take a heart, um, poke fun at the existing uh, order <coughs> through their poetry. So it's uh, that's how much respect poetry is given. Uh, reciting memory, highly sought after skill. Um, we see the impact of poetic culture uh, everywhere in, in contemporary Muslim culture. The language of the Quran itself, so if you, when we study the topic of the Quran, one of the sources for the Quran is pre-Islamic poetry. Uh, the development of Quranic reciters. So people who memorize the entire Quran and can recite it from memory and how they recite it, the way they do it, uh, they, they take their... Um, their cue from these pre-Islamic poets who would recite long lines of poetry, um, you know, to, to, to groups. Uh, special place that poetry holds in culture, so we resistance, as I talked about, panegyric, that is critique, um, kind of poking at the existing order. Uh, it's seen as an important development for Quranic Arabic. So that the Arabic, the language itself of the Quran, of the Quraysh tribe, uh, so when we talk about it, so when I say, you know, we, if you under, if you ever study the language of Arabic, the, the Quran's written in a really high, highly stylized, really old form. Uh, what it ends up happening, what ends, we find out is that, that that Arabic is actually the tribal dialect of Muhammad, the Qurayshi dialect, uh, and that's highly uh, influenced by uh, poetry. So the importance of pre-Islam poetry, quick understanding of that, but uh, not something to be under underestimated. Yeah. So like, when it comes to like the Torah and the Old Testament, does some of the poetry um, provided from that as well, those sources, or is it all... No. So all the, short answer, no. It would be, because what they would talk about, a lot of the poet, and I remember taking classes, it would be, a lot of the stuff would be talking about the things that they were encountering. So love, uh, the desert, the desert at night, um, you know, distant memory, and okay. you know, it was it was all things. So, why does Arabic have? I think it was seventy some words to describe horses, or over a hundred to describe a camel. It's because you, the things that were the most important, and then you being used in poetry because you have how how Arabic uh, poetry works, and you, you know, rhyming and meter is important. So they would use different words, you know, the development of the language really is important. So it's it's more about the setting and, and lifestyle. Is there any correlation between Arabic poetry and Hebrew poetry? Is there any, kind of, um, any sense of connection or in the... Not, not, not really. No? Because um, I know Hebrew poetry was also very influential. Yeah, uh, I would... There hasn't been a lot of links... Um, mainly, and I would say probably because, or anybody, I've never read anybody linking the two. Mainly, I would say because Hebrew poetry predates right. for, by so many, such a long period of time, I mean, so many centuries. So, uh, depending, no so there's not there's not a much, lot of borrowing. And if you Hebrew poetry, the central theme is always. I mean, it's going back to you know this monotheistic uh, understanding of God. Uh, you know, God, uh, how the, the Hebrews understood God. So even when we're, we're talking about love and things like that, or how, you know, Proverbs and things, uh, Ecclesiastes, all these things written in a poetic language, there's always this sub-theme of God throughout it. And even, even Song of Solomon? Uh, <laughs> even that, well, that, I think the time period would, would show there would be a break. I mean, because when, when Song of Solomon is being written uh, versus when this stuff, there's not a lot of borrowing. I mean, maybe some of the themes come over, but the topics, um, 
It doesn't what seem the methods? way it was constructed. What about um, methods? I don't need to poetry's very yeah. Well, I've not read any. I've read a, I've read a decent amount of Islamic poetry. I've never seen any kind of connection. There. That's all I can say. So uh, there's a, the rhyme and meter of Arabic poetry is, is very very like hard written rules. Um, other than both of them being made to be spoken. So Hebrew poetry, whether it's the Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, all these things are meant to be heard, uh, are meant to be spoken orally. I mean, you read them, but at the time that they're being written, you're being recited and, and listening to these things. That's why uh, in Hebrew, the, the rhyming pattern uh, is there, uh, and it's the same thing in Arabic. So I don't know if that even answers what you're looking for. <laughs> I just kind of mumbled through that. But yeah, so not a lot of borrowing. Was were any of these people literate, or did they did they just get it uh, from verbal transmission? Uh, not almost in in the Arabian area uh, with these Bedouin tribes, the tribes that we're talking about. There's almost uh, no literacy, so, so it's all it's all memorization. So I would recite it. You would try. You would hear it, and then after two or three times, you would start to memorize it. So, how would you know if there was no uh, literary backup to see what the original said? Uh, you'd probably have several different forms of poems, especially the lengthy ones, simply because memory isn't perfect. Uh, memory isn't perfect, but I mean, I think we've, I mean, sociologists have studied non literate cultures pretty well. And be able to say, show that they, they actually are pretty faithful in their trends. The rhyming meter and the pattern helps to, to lock in. You know, the fact that you have to rhyme and it has to meet the meter means that you can't just play willy nilly or forget certain parts because then it breaks the meter and it breaks the rhyme. So being able to hold that rhyme and meter means that we're pretty, we become pretty confident that the, the trans, translation or the um, the transmission is pretty faithful. Okay. Yeah, if that makes sense. Is this meant to be part of Islam, uh, uh, their oral history, the poetry? Um, they would say no. I mean, mainly because they just, rep- they don't want, an outsider would look at it and say there's obviously connections. Uh, Muslims would say no because they don't, they don't consider uh, the Quran being poetry. It's, it's just, uh, it's actually, you know, revelation. It's pure revelation. So they don't, uh, when you hear someone reciting it, it's not, they don't think of it as poetry. They don't want to, dis- they don't want to call it poetry. They're resistant to that idea of it being just artistic. It's more uh, um, divine than that. You know, they, so they resist that idea. Uh, and it's very lyrical, too. So if you hear it, if you ever hear someone reciting the Quran, it almost sounds with someone who does it very well, it almost sounds like music because of the, the rhyming and the meter of the language. It sounds almost like music, but they'll never, you'll never hear a Muslim say that it's actually being sung because it, it's just not how they, they would understand. Like we wouldn't sing our Bible. Right. Well, some do. I mean, so that's, that raises a good point because people now would say, there's a movement that would say we should sing songs. In, as hymns, you know. So, but you wouldn't sing like historical books. Obviously, you're right. Like, you wouldn't sing like the New Testament uh, books. Yeah. Is the whole Quran? Yeah. Poetry. Uh, yeah, I don't want to call it poetry, but yes, it does. Uh, it does have that kind of uh, rhyme and meter to it. Okay. Yeah. So, if you hear, hear somebody reciting verses, it, they always you can hear it. So any yeah. What was the time frame here, or BC, or what? what? So we're talking uh, probably fourth, fifth century AD. Oh, AD. Yeah. So this is. So what's that like? Fifteen hundred years ago. Yeah, fifteen, sixteen hundred years ago. Come a long way. Just beat this one place. Exactly. So when the Quran is taught. Is there emphasis on the way it is expressed yeah. according to that meter? Yeah. Okay. So, so that's very yeah. important in there. Oh, absolutely. So, okay. uh, you know, some of you, Aaron might be able to, but when you heard of this idea of the madrasas, so a lot of 
poor families or uh, orphans will be sent to these schools, and these become really important in Pakistan for producing the Taliban who later go into Afghanistan. But you go to these madrasas and they don't learn their schools, but you don't learn anything like science and math. It's just Quranic recitation. So you just have a room full of kids reciting the Quran from, and memorizing the Quran and a teacher standing there with a stick smacking the kids if they don't say it to write to the meter, you know, because it's very does school. <laughs> does the uh, does the Quran really talk about like uh, killing non-believers and yeah? Well, let's wait till we get to the topic. If we get too deep into the Quran, what it actually says, because I want to. We got to set the context for the Quran, so we're going to actually in uh, the after Muhammad is the topic on the Quran. So let's let's hold off that. What's in particular until uh, we get to that topic? Good question. Uh, any other? Questions on the poetry or yeah. So why is it that the girls are not taught? If this is so important. Yeah, the girls. Well, uh, they are in some places. So I don't want to say they're not. In, in the Arabian context, they're not. But if you go to if you go to Asia, Southeast Asia, and see you'll you'll see women more involved than than men. They they'll memorize the Quran. They'll still. Uh, Learn it to so that they can memorize. You know, because every Muslim is supposed to memorize the Quran and know the verses. But as far as but I mean, as far as formal training, yeah, formal training in the Arabian context, it's made it's almost exclusively men, uh, and you don't see any kind of broadening out until you hit Southeast Asia. So, and that's this patriarchal, man-centered culture that it has its roots in Bedouin Arab culture. Why? Why in the Arabian context? So, good question. Uh, any other questions on this? This topic? All, all great questions. So I know, uh, you know, it may seem like we're we're bogging down or something, but it's, it's actually really good. Uh, so, political and religious context. So this is there's a lot of stuff that we need to cover here. Uh, and let me show that map again because. It, so if you see this map, this purple area and the orange area, Constantinople and then the Persian Sassanid Empire. So these are the two world powers at the time of uh, prior to Muhammad. And in the 100, 200 years leading up to uh, Muhammad, these are the two powers, the Persian and the Christian Empire. The, the what is, is, is this, what is this now? So this is Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. And you can see Egypt here. Israel would be like right here, Syria, and this is uh, Turkey right here. So over here is Iran and Afghanistan. Yeah, Iran is over here. Iraq, Iraq is well. Iraq would be right here. We see Mosul. So this area here is Iraq. Iran would be this part here, the Persian Gulf. So that's you know. Iran. So yeah, Mediterranean Sea. Italy's here. Greece. So you can see it's the eastern. The eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Good question. Uh, so, so a lot of times I take for granted because I've spent so much time studying. For me, I can you know I recognize it, but I it's good to uh, ask questions if you're unclear uh, where these areas are. Um, so the region, the two world powers at the time: uh, Byzantium, uh, the Byzantine Christian Empire, Persians, uh, the Sassanid Empire. Uh, there's some South Arabian kingdoms around what was modern-day Yemen in this area that are uh, important. Uh, but Byzantine Christianity was the dominant form of uh, the Christian religion that's present in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, Justinian I, who was emperor of the Byzantine Empire from 527 to 565, uh, seeks to reassert the greatness of the Roman Empire. So he's engaging in warfare against the Sassanids, uh, trying to re reestablish the greatness uh, that, that the Roman Empire once had. Um, so the reason for this, this is important for our for our understanding, is this conflict between the uh, Byzantine Empire here in the orange and the Sassanid Empire in the purple. This conflict uh, begins to create these vassal kingdoms. So they are fighting proxy wars with these Arabs. They begin employing the Arabs in this area uh, to fight wars on their behalf. 
Uh, the Arabs present in the region fought for the different sides. Um, and importantly, following his death, uh, Justinian's death in 565, the Persians began to push back and sought to regain influence and reverse their losses because Justinian was able to, to take take back, you can see, he was able to push back uh, some of the uh, some of the assassinated gains. So in southern Arabia, the area known, known as Yemen, which is down here, this area here, uh, an ancient kingdom known as the Himyar, so it's not that important, but just um, Himyar kingdom was important. It was important. Regional power uh, probably gained their wealth, their importance with the incense trade. So there's, uh, in Yemen, uh, there's a really important uh, incense that can only be found there. So they get wealthy because it's used in the Christian uh, liturgy. So this incense that, that you know you see becomes really important, and this is uh, the main place that it's it's, uh, it's found. Uh, so all the way you know going back while Rome was in, in it at its high point. Uh, so this interchange was uh, why we also have this Roman uh, this importance of incense is why you even have Roman gods, the old Roman uh, pantheon of gods present. So there's actually uh, Venus worship going on at the just prior to Muhammad as well, and that probably comes from this exchange of trade route exchange. Uh, religious scene at the time as well. So we have Christianity, which is uh, you know the, the form that's practiced by Byzantium. Uh, Zoroastrianism, which is the the religion of the Persian Sassanid Empire, which is also monotheistic. Uh, Zoroastrian religion. If you probably Many of you haven't heard of it, but if you have, it's uh, as I said, it's this it's a monotheistic religion, uh, and it emphasizes this battle of good versus evil, light versus dark. Um, uh, it seeks balance, so that's really one balance in all things. So light, dark, good, evil, uh, and you also have Judaism uh, with, in the presence of these um, with this mix of Christianity and uh, Zoroastrian religion. But then you also had animist, animist tribal beliefs present in the Arabs. So you had this whole melting pot of, of beliefs present in Arabia prior to the time of Muhammad in the 6th century. Uh, as I said, si- we talked a little bit about the Jews. So sizable population of Jews had settled in and around Arabia, including what, the modern-day area of Medina. We'll talk more about why Medina is important. So this area here... There were uh, several large Jewish tribes. Not uh, they weren't Jews; they were Jewish Arabs. So Arabs who had adopted Judaism, uh, but there were th- at least three that we know of sizable tribes in the area of Medina uh, that were involved in the trade routes. And uh, Christians were mainly located in so- southern Arabia, around that, as I mentioned, that Himyar Kingdom. So there's Christianity it doesn't break too far from this area down south, but actually it's mainly located down here. Um, So most of the contact that the Arabs would be making would be uh, with these different religions were through the trade routes as we talked about. Um, Since they're not literate people, they're hearing stories and they're just hearing these transmission of these stories stories from the Jews uh, about, you know, Abraham, Jacob, why these stories are being adopted. We know that in the Quran mentions some of these Old Testament prophets, how they got their way, likely because of the interaction with the Jews. Um, stories about who Jesus was, things he did. Uh, there's some apocryphal stories that are popular, popular with Muslims even to today, how these stories worked their way into the Islamic religion. Again, the types of Christianity that they were interacting with. Um, so, uh, a question we, we, we should seek to ask and understand is why why do we import why do Muslims import certain characters uh, from the Old Testament into this new religion? Why did they seek to borrow or take uh, these Old Testament prophets like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these names, and bring them into their new into this religion? 
so there's an issue of legitimacy because obviously doing so says if you're making your message and saying that we are building on this long line, then doing then you have to bring you have to have account for the the, the Jewish Old Testament saints. So there's this issue of legitimacy. Uh, Islam. So the idea that Islam's not something new. You know, the the Muslim, the message that Muhammad is preaching isn't that. It starts to be that we're not we're not just creating a new religion. You know, we're this is the true religion that was offered to the Jews. That they corrupted the message that was offered to the Christians through Jesus. That they corrupted, and now we have it, and it's we we certify that it's correct. So they needed to bring these in. Uh, these Old Testament uh, personalities, New Testament personalities into the religion. Uh, another important point to consider is that these recognized, recognized saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jesus, uh, universally recognized for their faith and piety. So whether uh, they would have heard these stories of these, these stories about Jesus, they would have heard these stories about the great the faithfulness of Abraham, and of their faith, their piety. It would have helped borrowing these characters into their religion helps transition from a pagan past uh, into the Islamic present. The idolatrous practices that were present in Arabia prior to Muhammad uh, were incorporated into the religion. If you remember, we talked about this last week as we ended. Uh, so veneration of the Kaaba, um, the, the, the central area in Mecca, why, why, are we able, why are they able to do that? It's because, well, now we connect it to Abraham. Abraham establishes the pilgrimage to Mecca. So, you know, according to Islamic theology, Abraham is the first Muslim to do so. So now we can do it. Even though it was something practiced by the, uh, by the pagans, uh, we can do it too. Muslim, think, you know, from a Muslim perspective, we can do this because Abraham does. So there's, it's not just an issue of legitimacy. It's an issue of how we how do we account for these practices that we're we're also bringing in? Uh, how, what do we what excuse do we have to bring these these practices in? These idolatrous practices that were existing. Abraham remains the first Muslim. So this is an important point that Abraham is is the first Muslim. It's not Muhammad. They they follow it all the way back. The first true Muslim. He's the one putting into practice. The activities which would have to be revived by Muhammad. So he practices the right religion, Muhammad, and then it gets corrupted, the message is corrupted, and then Muhammad brings it back. Wait. How did they get how did they get that Muhammad Abraham is the first Muslim? Where did that come from? Abraham from our Bible? Yeah. So the Old Testament Abraham from they hear the stories and then they they just switch it around and adopt it in. So they begin to follow this this line from Abraham to Ishmael. Obviously, so a lot of you know that Abraham to Ishmael. Right. And at some point, it becomes just adopted in and, and made as a. How do we explain this? Well, Abraham and Ishmael. We have these stories uh, that that they did. You know, and if you look at like an Islamic uh, um, family tree, you know, genealogy, I should say, they trace their. They go all the way back to Adam, so they can trace. From Muhammad, a straight line from Muhammad to Adam, uh, you know, through the, they have this like created, uh, I mean, I, I mean, obviously they can, right? Because they were all descent from Adam to some degree, but they, through Abraham and through this, uh, they, so they, they create this whole worldview, this whole theology, uh, to accommodate their beliefs. So there's a, um, disregard for the scriptures? Well, it's not that, uh, it's a great question uh, because it would seem like, well, wait a minute, this is not this is not what we're reading in the Old Testament, right? These, these stories. But if we remember, one of the central claims is that the Jews took the true message and they they corrupt the message. So the Jews, what they are now so saying, the corrupt. right? Right. So the Old Testament is corrupted by by not by Abraham, but by his the, the Jews who follow him. So the uh, people that wrote the Bible. Right, the Old Testament of the New Testament. Right. So they believe that that's why Muhammad is necessary because he's the final. He he gives a message that's not the God's true message. So he's it like their validator. Uh, yeah, in effect, in effect, uh, he's more, he's the final prophet. So he 
God gives this message to, to the Jews. They corrupt it. He goes, he gives them the same message to Jesus, and Jesus' followers corrupt the message. So he gives it one last time through Muhammad, and Muhammad gets it right. Oh, so, they, so they said Jesus got it wrong, huh? No, they, uh, his followers. Yeah, it's not that Jesus gave a... It's so that Jesus, Paul, Peter, all of the New Testament... Yeah, let's writers. not... Well, hold on. Let's not get too far into the theology part because we, we are... Okay. Yeah. It's hard not to. Yeah, no, it's... Yeah. Wow. I'm going to keep putting you off. Because <laughs> we want to... We wanna, uh, because there's more that has to be unpacked before we get there. Okay. Um, you unpacked too much already. I can't. I, I can't hold them. Right. I'm still. I'm still trying. So to we're pick just up trying to things. get some of the understanding in order to set the groundwork for Muhammad coming onto the scene. What are What are the beliefs that are there? Before unpacking too much of the Islamic worldview, which I probably already done. messed it up myself. So, any other questions that I can put off till later? Sharon, yes. Their Correct. So, Correct. Yeah, this, so this is what you're going to hear from an Islamic perspective. So originally, this was all like love and peace, love your brother, kind of similar to our religion. No. <laughs> I was going to say, man, where, when they, where did it get switched to where they started flying planes into buildings? Like, well, that's a good question. So where does it, does it start out peaceful? <laughs> Well, right. let's wait until... That's why I said... <laughs> well, no, we have to understand that the uh, the message of the Quran is tied to the life of Muhammad. So you can't understand how you interpret the Quran until you understand Muhammad's life. So we, that's why I said we, it, it, like, it does follow that you have to understand these things because um, it's not a book that you read from page one to page... Hundred, you know what I'm saying? It's not like a sequential book, so you have to understand that certain revelations are given at different parts, and then how that all comes together, and how is it explained by a Muslim? Why? Why does if uh, if we can look to the Quran and see that there's these passages deal that are violent, but a Muslim would say no, the Quran's not violent. Why would? Why can they say that? And that's why we want to understand some of these things. It's important to understand the development order to understand how a Muslim can come. Uh, so let's pull off any more about uh, that part. I will do, we are going to hit it, because it's an important understanding. Why Why do we have a, why does Islam, uh, why are there certain aspects of Islam that seem to manifest itself violently? You know, what explains this? What explains the 9-11 attack? What explains suicide bombings? What explains, uh, you know, attacks why, why can a Muslim kill another Muslim? Why is that okay in their religion? So we all, we want to understand because actually, you know, we, like as I said before, you know, we, we talk about 9-11 and a couple thousand people who died that day, but more people, Muslims are killing more of them, other Muslims than anything else. Yeah. So why are they doing that? How can they do that? And how can they be, uh, how is it okay into their worldview? So we, we need to understand the Quran, but we need to understand how it ties to Muhammad's life and, and the development of Muhammad's life. So uh, I'm going to put all of that on hold <laughs> for at least another couple of weeks. Yeah. We'll get to a part where there's peaceful Muslim and there's the terrorist Muslim. Um, they aren't all... Right. Well, I, I mean, that's the thing. So how do you account for, you know, the, the billion Muslims... You know, if we have almost two billion Muslims in the world today... Really? How do you account... If, if Islam... It's just given itself to the violence, then we should see more manifestations, especially in places like Asia. I mean, you have a little bit of uh, violence in the Philippines right now under a Muslim insurgency, but that tends to be, is actually more nationalistic, uh, more politically tied than it seems to be a religion pushing issue. So you actually have the largest concentration of Muslims in the world is in Asia, but you don't have the violence that you have in the Arabian context. How do we explain the violence here and, and the, abs- the near uh, absence of violence in this context? How do we explain the two together at, at the same time? Uh, and almost no history of violence over here in Asia. You know what I'm saying? So we have this long history of violence, uh, modern modern history, going back to the 70s, 
uh, in these places in, in the Arabian context are almost nothing going back to the 10th century, 10th, 11th century in Asia. So it connects to Muhammad. Uh, it, it, it connects to the to theology, which connects to the Quran, which has to be understood in the context of Muhammad. Okay. So this doesn't have to do over. Real, real quick. I, I don't believe that a lot of people really know like what's going on over there. Like they hear it's bad. Like I, I don't think people have actually got online and literally looked at what those people post put on the internet. They say they they do it for jihad, and from what I what I've talked about with a guy I know from Dearborn, all he said all jihad means is for for God. So you're telling me that they're, they're over there drowning people in cages in some dude's pool for. For God, so just, why? How can they even compare that to our Bible? So why? Uh, so let's let's hold up because I, I, we don't have the time. My heart rate's going up. We don't have the time to deal with. We don't have the time to get into the why. Um, it's suffice to say that I've I've done my best, including living there for a while, to try to understand. You did live over there, so didn't you? we can at least try. We want to understand that that's an important part. Uh, and it's something we can spend, we can park and spend a lot of time with, at least not in the beginning. Where'd so you live over there? Uh, in Jordan and in Palestine. So let's let's keep it moving because I don't want to get too far behind before we uh, we lose, uh, we go completely off the rails. I have one question. Yeah. So Byzantine Empire was from what year to what year? Uh, or roughly? Or based off that last um, emperor? Uh, so let me look it up. Uh, well, Ju- uh, Justinian the first, who makes the resurgence of the Byzantine Empire, is five twenty-seven to five sixty-five. So we're talking okay. mid sixth century. Right. So like forty years. Yeah, roughly forty years, mid middle of the sixth century. Uh, so, ending, um, we just talked about Abraham, first Muslim. He puts into practices those activities which be revived by Muhammad, the pilgrimage, these kind of things. From an Islamic perspective, human history is tightly knit with prophetic history. So in other words, uh, in other words, history prior to Muhammad is one is one marked by a revelation of God's message to the prophet, something we just talked about. Uh, the first message being uh, is uh, the first of prophet being Abraham, followed by his son, Ishmael. Uh, indeed, the, the office of the prophet is so significant that it, it, it is one of the articles of the faith of, of Muslims. So God, belief in God, his prophets, his books, uh, angels, and uh, judgment in the life hereafter. So five articles of faith. So prophets, the, the idea of prophets. And this is actually a really important topic. We don't have the time to get into it at this point, but it's one of the areas that Muslims today and Christians debate on because we have in Christianity and in Judaism there's a very uh, a prophet is has there's a very strict definition of what a prophet is. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we can't just play use that word willy nilly. Uh, there's uh, certain guidelines that God lays out what a prophet going back all the way into the Old Testament, but that's not an Islamic perspective. So we try we are uh, a lot of Christians will debate Muslims and say well. Muhammad wasn't a prophet. For instance, he didn't do uh, miracles. Muhammad's never, there's no miracles attributed to Muhammad during his lifetime. Uh, him, him personally doing a miracle. There's miraculous events that follow his life, but he never does a miracle in the sense that like Jesus did miracles. Uh, and so that would be for us as Christians because miracles and the ability to perform these kind of things is a signifier of, of prophethood or verifying the message uh, uh, why Jesus performed these miracles it verifies his message of, that he is uh, proclaiming on behalf of God from an Islamic perspective that's not the case so it doesn't need uh, the miracles aren't tied to prophethood the idea of a prophet under Islamic from an Islamic perspective is just you know uh, proclaiming God's message so they don't follow the criteria that's outlined in correct. scripture right for correct what makes a prophet so Abraham built the first house of worship to God in Arabia. This is the Islamic understanding. So in Mecca, that Kaaba that we've referred to a few times, is originally built by Abraham, they believe. Uh, begin 
but of, of course people corrupt and they begin uh, using it for idolatry so during this time the concept of the one true God was uh, was preserved by the first Jews and then the Christians and then it was believed that uh, some some people in Arabia had some kind of uh, monotheistic understanding and this is an Islam perspective so they believed that worship of one true God was was kind of kept alive by the Jews and then the Christians and then was uh, perfected in uh, Muhammad and, and the Islamic worldview. Uh, so during this time in Arabia, due to its location on the Silk Road, remember we talked about the Silk Road, these trade routes originate in China and go all the way into Europe. Uh, these trade routes are important in the local economy uh, and most of the local tribes are involved with them in one way or another. In the city of, Me- of Mecca, uh, that house of worship that the Kaaba we've referred to it a few times um, was built for a place of pilgrimage uh, Muslims believe that originally a pilgrimage was the was the duty of the descendants of Ishmael so every descendant of Ishmael was supposed to continue on this pilgrimage that Abraham starts along with his son Ishmael uh, later it becomes a center of polytheism uh, it's filled with uh, with depictions, uh, different um, uh, idol, idol, idols representing different gods. Uh, once a year, there was a great pilgrimage to Mecca. This is, again, before Muhammad. So there's already this pilgrimage to Mecca to visit this Kaaba uh, by all the tribes in Arabia. So once a year, all the tribes all over Arabia would go to Mecca to, to do this religious pilgrimage no matter of their faith didn't matter what faith they were didn't matter what religion they were who they followed they all would engage on this pilgrimage to Mecca once a year and control over that site falls to the uh, Banu Hashim tribe of the Quraysh this is Muhammad's clan Muhammad's tribe so it's also believed that there existed just prior to the birth of Muhammad uh, a group of Arabs who worship the one true God but that's just an apocryphal idea. Uh, there's no evidence to that. All right, so the takeaway for us today on that first subject that we're actually took us two sessions is that there, there existed this rich cultural heritage in Arabia prior to Muhammad. It wasn't, um, it wasn't just a wasteland. It wasn't just empty uh, desert. Language, arts, religion, trade, finance, they're all present and thriving to some degree or another in the Arabian Peninsula. But for the Muslim, for the for the Muslim today, for the Muslim following Muhammad, the coming of Islam represented a break with the past, a break with the existing culture, a break with those things that represented a corrupted culture. Uh, and I think, but in reality, it seems to be better to understand, and this is non-Muslims would understand it, Islam is Islam, is an heir to the traditions that were already present in uh, in Arabia. So, well, we got five minutes, so I'm going to push us to uh, get that next time. Yeah. Yeah. Question? So you mentioned that the Kaaba, um, that the Muslims believe that Abraham established. So, would they start with Abraham and Ur and being called up Ur? That's a good question. I don't, I, I don't know where they follow it. Like if they if they start the story like the Old Testament where Abraham is called out of Ur, and I don't think that they trace it like that. I could look it up, uh, but I just know I know that it's because he doesn't live there. Like he doesn't settle there. He just builds the house of worship and establishes this pilgrimage and returns there. But he doesn't actually live there. So I don't think that they connect it. But I could double check that. And then are they tracing? Abraham's pilgrimage in this Quran? No. No. So, where is it? Is this extra revelation outside of the Quran? Well, no. So, they mention Abraham and Ishmael making the pilgrimage, but they don't, like, uh, they don't get that specific other than saying the pilgrimage is established by Abraham and Ishmael. So, instead of Abraham and Isaac going. Yes, it's just Abraham and Ishmael. Yeah, and they're very careful to pair the two together. It's Abraham and Ishmael. It's mentioned together, kind of, and, and almost establishing Ishmael's legitimacy by connecting him with as Abraham's favorite son, according to Islamic theology. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
that's your question. Any other uh, questions, comments? Would you just say your takeaway one more time, the rich cultural heritage we started to Yep. Uh, so uh, the takeaway for us today is that there existed a rich cultural heritage in Arabia prior to the time of Muhammad. Language, arts, religion, trade, finance were all present and thriving to some degree or another in different areas of the Arabian Peninsula. But for the Muslim, the coming of Islam represented a break from the past, a break with the existing culture, a break with those things that all represented a corrupted culture. So, starting on the topic of Muhammad. Um, it's often been commented that while Muslims may think um, may think those who deny the existence of God, who utter blasphemies, blasphemies about him are misguided, such a discussion will not offend in the same manner in which discussions over Muhammad were. An attack on any aspect of Muhammad is rightly understood by the Muslim as an attack on all Muslims. Since Muhammad is seen as an, the ideal to which all Muslims strive after. So that's it's uh, a really important thing to understand. Why is it, uh, if you remember, there was, uh, what's that? It's very weighted, or weighty, in, yeah. in regards to them putting almost more prefaces or preferential treatment towards Muhammad than God. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's very, I mean, uh, it's why there were the riots in Europe a few years ago, uh, the Charlie Hebdo. Yep. Uh, that's, the that cops because, put those two guys down on the way into the art show. Right. And all these things, because, uh, you know, your uh, depictions or claims of Muhammad or making, poking fun at Muhammad and putting him in cartoons, why that erupts in more violence than even, you know, something that someone who would say something against God, the actual uh, idea of God. So why is Muhammad so such an important when they they will say a Muslim will say that uh, Muhammad isn't divine he wasn't like the same person as Jesus he did not he's not uh, any divine in any sense he didn't work any miracle he was just a man he lived a simple life why is it that an attack against the person of Muhammad will trigger more and part of the question is as it says it's uh, because uh, and it's not there at the quote but it says uh, as I said um, he's understood Muhammad is the ideal to which all Muslims strive it's who every Muslim wants to be whether man woman you want to live your life like Muhammad lived we easily as Christians we sit here we can easily dismiss Muhammad's claims right we don't have to even I mean there's no question we read about inconsistencies in his life the words he spoke and we're not surprised about these things that we hear, right? We, we, we doesn't even we don't even have to think about it, and, you know, give it much thought. While it's absolutely true that Muhammad is a central figure of Islam, as I said, he does not occupy the same place as Jesus Christ does in Christianity. As we know, Jesus claimed oneness with the Father, uh, and by doing so, he claimed divinity. So, while being fully divine, he was also fully man, and both are true, and both are necessary to our understanding of Christianity. But rather than claiming divinity, Muhammad actually, uh, he actually made sure he, his followers knew he was just a man. He claimed uh, he's believed by his followers that he's the last of a long line of prophets, but he's not just the last prophet in a numerical sense. So he's not just the last prophet to come in a long line, but he's, uh, the significance of his being last, or rather the final prophet, is that his message is perfect and uncorrupted and his example and speech are what all Muslims aspire to. He is the model of what a true believer, what a true Muslim should be in this life. So I'll finish off this little paragraph I have and then we'll, we'll wrap up. And it's perhaps in this way that there's some overlap between Jesus and Muhammad. So uh, for both of these, the historic persons, the words they spoke, the things they did, come to take on a larger importance a lot of times in the lives of those who follow. I'm sure many of you remember the What Would Jesus Do movement, wristbands, you know, that What Would Jesus Do? So we think about, in this situation, what would, what would Jesus do and I should do the same. His actions, his thoughts become important to us as, as his followers. 
Muslims engage in the same type of activity as well, not with wristbands, but rather they, they use hadiths. We talk about hadith. Uh, we'll talk about what that is, a recording of something he did in his life, uh, of some interaction Muhammad had that parallels what they're encountering. So one, here's a quote to eliminate that, that point further. Regardless of how interesting the events of Muhammad's life may be, the significance for Muslims of the person himself and the actual facts of the narrative does not lie particularly in the historical narrative at all. Rather, it is the anecdotes about his life, the hadith, and the more generalized aspects of what that behavior represents that concern the community most of all. This is the sunnah, or the example provided by the life of Muhammad, which every Muslims, every Muslim attempts to emulate. So the example, the behavior, what are the anecdotes? Uh, are more important than his the dates and times of his life. So uh, we'll end there.